0: Music Life Radio brings you It's Part of My Life. I'm your host, Dan Slaughter. My guest today, Tom Mulder, lived through the Nazi occupation of his homeland during World War II. Music has played a very special and integral part in Tom's life. And here's Tom.
1: I was born in 1937, April 29, in uh, a suburb of The Hague called Scheveningen. As many songs or many tunes and things like that that I remember as a child that I listened to at the radio and uh, still remember to this day that brings in memories that I think oh yeah I was sitting there and there when I grew up 1937 there was a jamboree in the Netherlands and uh, I can still sing the song that I learned perhaps as a baby and I went something like this in 1937 to zou je wat beleven to kwam de jamboree In Nederland Anything further, I don't know what to do. I, I still don't know the tune, but I don't know really the words, because, you know, I was just a baby when, when I was born. But we had my brothers and sisters who were all singing this sort of things. And it must have been ingrained into my brain in order to get this going. And uh, i never forgotten that. And my brother who was a lot older and died by by now, who uh, remembered and said, you know, this is the Jamboree in 1937. And I said, oh, yeah, 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 I remember that, that I sang the song to him. And he was astonished because he couldn't believe that I remembered that song because, like I said, I was just a baby. But uh, somehow that just entered my brain and never really left.
2: (laughs) ¶¶ London, London, Jamulini, Jamulani, London, 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 London,
3: London, 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 London,
0: Soon after that World Boy Scout Jamboree, Europe was plunged into war. What was it like growing up in the Netherlands in those dark times? And did music bring you any comfort or solace? Do you remember any music
1: during the war? The Germans confiscated all radios. There was no more radio at all. Nothing. Nothing. They were afraid that you would listen to the BBC, and you know, so they didn't want you to listen to that. So, from I would say 1942, 43, or 45, no more radios and no more music at all, nothing except if you have a record player. And we did not have that in our house, that wasn't there. Some people had record players, and as a matter of fact, uh, the Jews, of course, were being uh, just taken out of their homes and left them. There was one family. I didn't know that at the time, but now I of course remember or or realize that they were taking out their uh, furniture and and they had record players, the type that you wound up. There were records, jazz and things like that and I did not understand what they were singing because it was English and of course it was Dutch and I didn't know what they were saying. So that sort of thing, that was actually the only type of of music that I learned
0: or or heard about. Music is typically associated with celebration
1: or mourning.
0: Are you surprised that there wasn't any music going on at
1: all during the war? There were no, no celebrations like weddings and things like that because people held out. You know, like my brother got married. I think 1945, something like that, or 44, that they knew the the war was going to be ending. And what they mainly had at, at weddings were accordions. And they were playing that sort of songs, and I always liked that. 1944, 45, I was a uh, altar boy. I was terrible at that, because I didn't know what the hell... Th- <laughs> I, <just laughs> I could never remember the depth Latin... <laughs> mayor cooper mayor cooper mayor maxima cooper (laughs) and that was the end of that (laughs) i walked around with this damn book that i had to bring from one end to the other to the other and i probably went the wrong way by the end of the show this priest he slapped me in his face because (laughs) i had done the wrong thing and i thought well i think i'm not fit for that sort of thing So I quit that soon after that. I wasn't a fun thing. First of all, I had to get out of my bed, you know, in the early morning, without food, because there wasn't much food in those days. Much food, there wasn't any food at all. So, you know, you walk to this church, and then uh, you got harassed by this damn priest (laughs) that slapped you in the face. You did the wrong thing. Well, screw this, man. I don't want to do this again. (laughs) So I quit that soon after that. During the war, I used to go into the houses that were all around us. And we were in this part of uh, the Hague of Scheveningen, where I was living. We were still allowed to stay because the Germans wanted my father because he worked for the penitentiary and they needed him. So all the homes around us were empty. I still remember I used to go to one of the highest homes in in there and looked for the the bombers that were com- coming over and um, not bombing bombs but food packages with flour and milk and uh, tens of of uh, cream crackers and all the food that we needed because our part of the of the the, the Netherlands was starved Forty five, nineteen forty four 1944 uh, to 45 was just incredible the the Germans just took all the food away and we were just starving to death so the, the Swedish Red Cross uh, gave all this this food to us, and the Americans you could see them. You, we could wave to the, the 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 pilots that are in there. They were dropping all this food on these particular areas where they're you know taking it, and they they were giving it all the flour to the, the bakeries and things like that, giving us the, the bread. And I remember the the bread that we got from the, from the Germans or the rations that we have three, four inches by about an inch high, about two inches wide, black. And that was a ration for five or six people per family for one week. Most of it was sawdust. It wasn't yeah. really food. It was just, you know. So now when this all this, this food was being dropped onto the, the uh, our area, all this, this this flour was given to the, uh, the bakeries who was now ba- who were now baking uh real bread for us. Uh-huh. During the war or during the, the, the what they call the hunger winter, we were given sugar beets. And sugar beets, my mother cooked that stuff and she made syrup out of that. It was quite good. Sweet, but at least it was something to eat. And from the pulp that was left over, she made kind of a a jelly type thing that you smeared onto your bread. It was horrible. I mean, it was just even when you were hungry, it was still not very very good. So here we were getting this new, wonderful white bread. And she was going to put this crap on it. And I said, Mother, I will never, ever eat this crap again and she said, you're absolutely right. And she threw it away. But for was something that she rarely did because was food was food, you know. And uh, I never ate it again after that. So thank God for that. The war finally
0: does come to an end and music returns to the country. Out in the front is the Dutch swing college band that actually formed on Liberation Day. Can you comment on the return of music To the Netherlands.
1: Well, those are five or six students, you know, from the University of Leiden. They wanted to just celebrate the damn end of the war and they started to play this music. So this band was formed that was just such a success because all over the Netherlands there was music all around and people were dancing in the street because the war had ended. May 5th, 1945. I still remember. I was. Eight when it the, the war ended, and I had no knowledge of the Dutch swing college at all until, of course, years and years later, when I started to become a teenager and listen to music and jazz and things like that. When I started to enjoy their music, and they came to The Hague, where I eventually went to, so we danced to the music, and that's what it was. <laughs>
0: Before you were interested in jazz music though classical played a really big part in your life
1: after the war of course you got radios that was made by Philips almost every home in Holland had that you dialed a dial and you got one speaker perfect though by the way i mean it, it had all the high and low tones and you had one or two foreign stations like that that fluctuated between France and Belgium and England and Germany. You always had the three stations of the, of the Dutch Hilversum 1, 2, 3. Uh, they always had uh, stories or the news. Most of the stations featured classical music or pop music and things like that. But our household usually leaned toward the classical type music. And that's what what I was listen to because that's what my parents wanted and of course since it wasn't in uh, a democratic society in my household like most most households that's what we listen to after a certain piece of music the announcer usually announced what it was they always told you what the category of this particular music was and who composed it and things like that
0: Growing up in The Hague as a teenager must have exposed you to the new musical movement of the time, which was jazz. How did your experiences in The Hague lead you to become a fan of jazz?
1: Of course, as a teenager, I didn't have any money. The Kurhaus is a big hotel that was built in 1860, I believe and uh, attracted lots of people that wanted to go to the beaches and things like that from Germany and the the well-to-do in the Netherlands as well. And they had concerts there. But since we lived there, we knew how to go to certain areas where the doors were always kind of half locked. (laughs) So we used to sneak in and listen to all the concerts Jerry Mulligan came at one time, uh, the Jazz Messengers. I must have seen at least five, six concerts there for free. <laughs> because, and it was great, because, you know, you sit there and, you know, kind of blend into the crowd and you walked out at night <laughs> when the concert was over. No harm done. I just listened to it and I enjoyed it, you know, and that's what it was. And then I started to appreciate it because that was music that I was not really used to that I thought, well, this is different, you know, but as a teenager you take in anything that is new. You know, and I think, oh, well this is different than what my parents listened to, so there must be something, you know, a little bit more revolutionary and, and start to get against your your parents' wishes and things like that and that's what we did. And that's how it works.
0: That has gotta be a recurring theme throughout any family's <laughs> history. <laughs> As a teenager, you had a curfew, so you were somewhat limited to how late you could stay out. Oh, yeah.
1: I had to tell you one time that I had come in a little bit later than 12 o'clock, and my father said, well, you're not coming in anymore. Okay, so <laughs> I said, well, too bad then. So I went back to the bar where my brother was. and uh, Not that you were getting drunk, with, you are just drinking beer and things like that. No bad things at all. And I said, well, my father just told me that I cannot come in. And and my brother at that time was renting a room uh, with my sister who was already married for 10 years or something like that. So I said, okay. And this was about, I would say, April. April and April in, in Holland is still quite cool and of course there was no bed for me at all so I laid in front of their heating system what they had in those days and uh, tried to follow of with, my, with my, all my clothes on and of course I couldn't and in the early morning about 6 o'clock my uh, brother-in-law started to come in into the house and I said oh hello Bert and he scared the hell out of me because he didn't expect me to be there And he said, what are you doing here? I said, well, you know, and I kind of explained to him, and he said, okay, forget it. So then I went to work that particular day. My mother was all worried that I had just, you know, fallen into a ditch or gone to all the bad things in (laughs) in the Hague. And my father called me, (laughs) you know, you had better come home that day. (laughs) So my mother was kind of, you know, more liberal than my mother, than my father was. So I actually never did this again, even though I came once in a while a little bit later than 12 o'clock. But 12 o'clock was about, you know, respectable kids don't stay any longer than that, you know. Later on, of course, when I, when I came out of the service and I was already 21, then it didn't bother them more. it Of course, you know, now you come home whatever time you think is, it's the right time. But when you're, you know, 18, 19, 20 or whatever... Then you need to be home at uh, at twelve o'clock. Not just me, but most people in there was.
0: I've been told that the Dutch have a love for Rita Rice, who is known as the first European lady of jazz. Mm-hmm.
1: as she was young; she was you know, in her twenties, I believe, when she when she started to sing. It was a new voice. The announcers even mentioned that while she was singing, you couldn't really tell that she was was Dutch, you know, because her English. You couldn't tell the, the, the dialect, you know, and she sounded just fantastic.
2: Now won't you listen, honey, while I say How could you tell me that you're going away Don't say that we must fight Don't break your baby's heart I've no loved you for these many years, loved you night and day. Oh, honey, baby, won't you see my tears? Listen while I say, After you've gone, you left me crying. There's no denying, you feel blue, you'll feel sad. You miss the best girl you ever had. There'll come a time, don't you But I was
1: still the model in jazz. Model in jazz came in later, you, you know, up to the 1955s and things like that. The Dutch swing colors, what I mentioned before, the Dixon type jazz was more in vogue than the model in jazz. As a matter of fact, I went to a an, uh, an concert once of Sidney Boucher. And Sidney Boucher was in uh, was it the tenor saxophone. Yeah, I think so. One of the long ones. Not the one with the curve. He played off-key. I tell you. I mean, it was just awful. But the people just loved it. They thought it was fantastic. But I could hear that he that, that the guy was just playing off-key. And I thought, hmm. And then, uh, Model and Jess came in. And it was... I could tell that people that were in the audience were appreciating that. but The drum especially was annoying. It was like... <coughs> constantly, this sort of rhythm. And a little bit of the bass, maybe piano and things like that. And it wasn't really appreciated by the crowd that came to hear Sitting Boucher. And they started to get really rowdy and things like that, you know. And I thought, hmm... This is very interesting. And my brother, who was with me at that time, who played the trumpet, he was studying at the conservatorium in in The Hague. So he knew what was going on. And he said, and and Pim Jacobs, he wasn't uh, married to uh, Rita Rice at that time. He was just, you know, playing there. And he said, did you hear what he was playing, the bass? And I wasn't tuned to that particular type thing, but that was actually the first uh, encounter with model and jazz. Before it was all Dixieland and uh, the saints come marching home and that sort of thing and everybody went rowdy and later on it became more sophisticated in in certain areas eras where we, we needed to be.
0: As you grew up, you listened to a lot of classical music on the radio. Eventually, that turned to jazz as you grew older. There was also a lot of folk music from all over Europe being played. I understand that you had a particular aversion for Belgian or Flemish folk music.
1: Especially the Belgian type crap. I mean, there was, I mean, there was no other word for it but pure crap. I mean, they were singing sentimental so- songs like this little girl was sitting in front of the window and was seeing his little friends playing outside of the ball and she couldn't play and I mean uh, and the sugar and crap that came out of that was just put you to tears and you turned the switch right away because it was that bad <laughs> Was it similar to English or French music? Was that
0: on par with that? No,
1: no, no there were the, I don't speak French but there were the chansons. The chansons were, you know, folky type music, but they were happy and, and like a dance type thing, you know, upbeat. And that's, that's what we enjoyed. And on the English folk songs or the Irish folk songs were incredible. I didn't understand them at that time, but I knew they were good because the songs and the, the melodies were so wonderful that I thought, wow, you know, they were, they were incredible. The Germans, again, they were kind of sentimental. They were still well made. You know, the Germans knew how to structure a song quite well. Now, the Dutch had their own little crappy songs. that were just as bad as the the Belgians. (laughs) And they were just, you know... At one point, they had a little girl. I think she was about five or six. Who sang a song about a little girl father and mother are taking us to the to the playground that is heaven on earth and it went on and on and on there was about two or three minutes song when she sang that and everybody in Holland knew that song including me of course because you heard it every five minutes you know when this girl grew up as, as an adult they asked her about this song if she remembered that she said I don't remember it not at all. She had totally forgotten what the song was about. It was that meaningful, huh?
0: <laughs> <laughs> For my generation, we have a lot of sub-genres within popular music. You've got rockers and rappers, metalheads and punks. There's a distinct division between these different groups, these subcultures, When you were growing up, there was also a division between the hooligan jazz and the sophisticated jazz crowd. Well,
1: you see, that particular crowd, the hooligan type, went to concerts like Lionel Hampton. They went to Louis Armstrong. And some others, I forgot exactly who they were. But, and they just smashed the whole audience. I mean, they smashed the chairs. They, they just went totally berserk. And of course, I did not belong to that. And I wouldn't even go there. Even though the music for Lionel Hampton I, I, I like. So we went, like I said, I mentioned the Coor and things like that, where most of those more sophisticated type, type concerts were being held. But the Hooligan crowd never participated in that. That that's not what they wanted. It was you know, I don't know what they what they were thinking. But you mentioned the, the the songs and the the music that's being played right now. But I see some guy singing or or even a woman singing on on the, the television and things like that, I always feel like they oh, they have gusto. You yeah, know, they are singing with gusto, and it's pure crap. You know, as far as I'm concerned, because they sing singing the same song over and over and over and over again and that especially the rap music I'm I'm even this afternoon I was sitting in the car and some jackass came with this music or I don't call it really music but I mean uh, this noise that comes out of his car that I think how the hell can you listen to this garbage cuz that's what it is in my view you know it might be beautiful for them but uh uh, turning up your bass uh, full blast and go, boom, 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 driving down this neighborhood is not my type of music. And I think you're disturbing my foundation, you know, because everything kind of moves with your boom, 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 boom type thing. So that's not the type of music that I like.
0: So do you think it's that younger group that's just pushing the envelope? Of what their parents are used to
1: yeah they it's the same type crowd as far as i'm concerned that there were hooligans in the first time you know and are still hooligans by playing that sort of crap music becomes
0: the aggravator or motivator for certain individuals behavior music becomes a channel in which they display their anger or or rage so you've got hooligan jazz and this more sophisticated jazz, fundamentally very similar. Just different subgenres. And you've got different subcultures that subscribe to those subgenres.
1: Yeah, if I uh, let's say take a piece of music off of Bach and I put a little bit of an, an twist to that and make it a little faster, it's jazz. Of the uh, highest class. As a matter of fact, the Dutch swing colours did it one time. They start out with an A harpsichord. I start out with that. And you know, this particular friend of mine who bought this record, this uh, Francis, his father said, Oh, good, I can listen to some Bach. And when he was playing and it turned into a jazz type thing, he got so angry, he said, You got to bring this record back. That's funny. (laughs) But you see, that's how it is. Because if you just twist it a little bit, Bach is jazz or jazz is Bach. A lot of metal
0: musicians take classical music and they speed it up and they yeah. play the exact same note for yeah. note. And it's this it is classical music. <gasps> yeah. now you call metal because The 5th
1: symphony bad. of of Beethoven yes. but they made it to to a popular song. It's quite nice. It doesn't have to be exactly classical it needs to be good and I know I mean not that I'm a specialist in music I know damn well what is good food and what is good music you know you need to know what is good music something that is well composed well written and listened to that you can say yes this is pleasant it's like wine people come to me and they said well I I don't know quite well when when you say uh, the wine has uh, peaches in there and this and that. And I said, neither do I. I said, it's not like when I'm listening to music, I'm not going to say, well, there's this note in there and there's this note in there. You just take it and say, now this is really nice to my palate or my ears. And that's it.
0: And it's an individual experience, really. It
1: might be good for you. It might be good for another. It might not be good for me or any other people. And that's it. Music, you either like it or you don't. I'd like to ask
0: you about your military service, how you were drafted, when you were drafted.
1: Oh, yeah. The Dutch were drafted, or the Dutch uh, military were drafted. The year they turned in 20, I came in, what the hell was it? Well, anyway, I was was called December, I think, 1953 or 54, in a town called Nijmegen for the Air Force. The interesting thing is the first day when you get drafted, you get your meal, your first meal. It's very, very good. My father had it, my brother had it, and I had it. And what it is, it's a mash type stuff with uh, potatoes, Onions and carrots and meat, and man is it ever good. People just thought it was disgusting but I loved it. As a matter of fact, I always like stuff like that. I even like airline food (laughs) because I think it's great, you know, it's fun. You have to make the best of what you get.
0: Why were you drafted? Was that just a general policy of the government? Oh,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah, everybody that was able to serve needed to be in the military, just like the draft over here, but was uh, eliminated in during the Nixon years after the Vietnamese War. Yeah, now that's changed in Holland as well. But during my days, when you turned uh, 20 in that particular year, you were drafted and automatically. But was not really that bad, you know. I mean, some people just totally hated it. I thought kind of like, yeah, it's part of my life. But we had to learn all the exercises, you know, rifles up, this and that, and running in the the field and, you know, the, the normal type things that people go through. For about, I think, six weeks. And then we were shipped over to Germany, British command under NATO. So I came into a German uh, camp called Laburg. Uh, that was a an, uh, an squadron type thing, a photo squadron where I belonged to. I met great guys. You know, we had wonderful times and things like that. We formed our own little group with all the college-educated type guys. <laughs> and we had a hell of a time. It was no big deal. And we just worked from, I think, 8 in the morning till about 4 or 5 in the afternoon, just like a regular hours. And we worked in uh, various professions that we were assigned to do and that was the end of that we used to go to certain workshops uh, and we applied for in mass <laughs> because we were all the same type people that were all kind of thinking the same type things and uh, we went to catholic uh, workshops uh, humanistic workshop protestant uh, you name it we <laughs> and it was a week of not doing anything you know so it was great We listened to music and they were giving us information and better food. (laughs) So it was lots of fun. You know, we always enjoy that sort of thing. But during the weekends, I used to work in the kitchen, you know, so I had food and I would bring in hams and salamis and the guys liked that because then I didn't have to go to the mess hall and you got the the average type of food and I I could bring in all the best food (laughs) that we had. So it was fun, you know. I enjoyed that.
0: You had the opportunity to go check out different religions. Yes. Does anything in particular stand out for you? Yes.
1: Humanism. I admired that particular type of of philosophy that I thought, hmm, that's very interesting. It's it's It's, non-violent. It doesn't necessarily believe in a god. It believes in uh, just humanity. Yeah, that's that's really what, what makes sense, you know. The, the doctrine about uh, heaven and earth and the Bible and things like that cannot be right. And one people is favored over another, you know, like the Egyptians were being prosecuted because God told them so. And right now you find out things that, like, for instance, the army of the Egyptians supposedly followed this group of, of Israelites into the Red Sea. There's no evidence that they found any weapons or horses or anything like that. The story is being told by the winners. In other words, the winners wrote it down the way they wanted them to be it. You know, and that I think is is important. Nothing to do with music, but on the other hand.
0: One of my influences is a man named Greg Graffin. He is in the punk band Bad Religion. He recently won a Lifetime Achievement Award from Harvard University for his work in humanism. A lot of the bad religion songs focus on humanism. Uh, and the basic thought is we need to get away from focusing on religious rules and doctrine. How, how can we elevate ourselves to help our fellow man? We should be busy spending more time supporting our own human race as opposed to fighting wars and destroying each other and just get away from f- you know, f- the fear and the focus on otherworldly powers. Know, to save us from ourselves.
3: And did those feet in ancient times trot on America's pastures of green? And did that anthropocentric god wane with their thoughts and beliefs all so unseen? I don't think so. He's up there with the others laying low. By and with those who you've traded your life to bless your soul, and have they told you how to think? Cleanse your mind of sepsis and autonomy, or have you escaped scrutiny? And regaled yourself with depravity. Now we all see Religion's a synthetic frippery
1: Unnecessary In our expanding global cultural efficiency. I'm, I'm totally opposed to wars. Wars are the most destructive things as you could imagine. And this country just, you know, we got this enormous army, millions of people are working towards war making machinery and you know, we got to use it because, you know, that's what we got but it's the wrong way as far as I'm concerned, war is not a good thing, you know, if we have all this energy that we're focusing onto war type carpets if you could focus that into humanity type things, wouldn't that be so much better, you know? I mean, that's where we put our wealth instead of, you know, we're betting on the wrong horse. That's the sadness of this world as far as I'm concerned, especially in the United States, who could change that?
0: I I know there were other people in the military that you might've gravitated away from, but do you remember any other types of musical influence
1: that those people might've brought to the table? There's three major cities, Rotterdam, The Hague and Amsterdam. That's where things happening. If you go to the outer cities of, of the Netherlands, they're there and they listen to it, but uh, especially in the 1950s. Not that we were that sophisticated, but we were perhaps a step higher. You know, as a matter of fact, I sp- uh, spoke to a dear friend of mine who came from the northern part of the Netherlands, who isn't stupid at all. As a matter of fact, he's an engineer. He's very, very bright. And he said, you know, Tom, he said... I envy you guys because you had all that exposure of what we never had in our part of the the Netherlands because I was never there because there were only the three cities got you know the rest kind of well, who wants to go to Layward? I, I, you know, that was a larger part of Friesland and things. But still not big enough to get jazz musicians from the United States. So when I came to the servers, we had influences or guys from all over the, the Netherlands. I remember one guy and they pulled out all his tooth because <laughs> they were rotten. He put on boots and he was walking like this. I'm not exaggerating. And I said, and he was a very nice guy. And I said, What happened? He said, That's the first time I had shoes on. I said, What do you mean? He said, I always had wooden shoes. They were what you call people that were pulled out of the clay. Nice people, and I wouldn't. Look down upon them, that's not the point. I'm just pointing out that there were people that were completely different than what we they were. They just
0: didn't have access to, to
1: dental anything. hygiene or anything. Nothing, like that, yeah. nothing. They were just, you know, farm pipe type people. They had not heard or, you know, they were more of the umpapa, umpapa type of music and that sort of thing. That's fine and dandy, but... What is that, a traditional,
0: local type of music? Yeah, right.
1: You know, you had an uh, accordion, simple type of music that people could dance on, and it's usually a waltz type thing, and nothing to look down upon, but that we had, we were (laughs) beyond that sort of thing.
0: You could probably almost equate that to just simple rock and roll almost, right? Uh Compared to like a modern jazz... Uh-huh. Where things are much more No, complex. but
1: don't, don't, when I saw the movie, what was it, Deliverance? And you see this little kid playing the, the banjo. Yes. Oh, that's a different ball game altogether. <laughs> How's that? Well, that is
0: classic. So well, it was a technique, it was very, it was yeah. actually pretty intricate.
1: Right. Yeah. But I mean, that to me is that I think, holy crap. Yeah. It's incredible. You know, I mean, that. That's different again that, than the Dutch had, yeah. you know. That to me, that would never occur in Holland. You know, you, you would never have an, a guy that could play their accordion, accordion in such a way that you say...
0: Yeah, that was more of like a, almost an autistic person playing an instrument at a, yes. a pretty high level. Yeah. As opposed to probably what you were referring to, which was more basic.
1: Yeah, right. you know, kind of like, yeah, you know, I, I can, you know, whatever. At the
0: same time, it was providing a, a basic harmony and rhythm, and the people yeah. could relate to it, and they yeah. were having fun. And they
1: all danced, and I was uh, have a good, good time. And So about a, a year we were living there, we, uh, we were shipped back to Holland. And then we came in barracks that were built by the Germans, and they were... In the shape of farmhouses, except the, wall, the walls were there, cloud of cement. Cold, oh God, it was cold. In each room, it was about the size of this, let's say 20 by 20, beds all around. And uh, no more sheets, what you were used to. Just blankets and, and uh, straw mattresses. Oh Christ, that was horrible. No showers, no nothing. There was just poor Dutch military garbage you know and it was one little pot stove in the middle and total total misery and I stayed there for about another because we were our our duties was for for the Dutch government was 18 months and I think I had already served about a year so you know had about maybe six or seven months more to go and that was it but the Dutch gave you uh, every other week a free pass with the train to where you were, where your parents were. If you didn't have a girlfriend or things like that, you stayed home and embarrassed what I did and many other guys th- did the same thing. And uh, then during the weekends, we were free, you know, whatever we wanted to do. And then we played records and, you know, we had conversations and just had a great time, you know, and that's what, what, what we did. That's where I learned about a singer, Chris Connor. And Chris Connor to me was one of the best jazz singers that I could imagine. The unfortunate thing for her, she wasn't pretty. She was pretty enough, but not pretty enough for becoming an, a gorgeous singer and this and that. And even if she can't sing, she still looks beautiful. You know, no, she wasn't. But she sang fantastic. You know, I could l- listen to her for hours and. The, the love songs that, that you were singing, you know, because you're always in love with some kind of a girl, you know, and you're at your barracks and you can't see the girl. You haven't been kissed for at least three, four days and you feel <laughs> kind of like, wow, man, this, this is something else. So you, you kind of cling on to Chris Conner. <laughs> and that's what I did. I got some records from her. She still sings very well. As a matter of fact, she still is around. She probably is in her 70s, late 70s by now. And she's, of course, heavy and things like that. And uh, she doesn't sing as much anymore. But you can still see her on YouTube. It's interesting to see how all the folks that you admire are still around. But anyway, she was one of my favorite, favorite singers.
2: promised kiss of springtime that makes the lonely winter seem long You are the breathless hush of evening that trembles on the brink of a lovely song
0: Tell me about how you met Sophia,
1: your wife. I met her at an again, a dance. There were many all over The Hague, little groups here, little groups there. And as a matter of fact, they had a society of jazz, The Hague Jazz Society, and you could go and you listen to the music. But they also had nightclubs all over. We had a resort area where I lived. And there were always bands playing, and so this particular one was a combo, a bass, a guitar, and a piano, or maybe a clarinet, whatever. And you could dance to that. And Sophia happened to be there too, so I was dancing with her. And I said, uh, tonight I have to go do something. She said, no, tonight I cannot uh, make it because I have an, uh, an engagement with my boyfriend and this and that. I said, well, I'll pick you up anyway. So anyway, I did and then she said, I, I, I can make
0: it. So, so let, let me uh, just recap. You met her at a dance for the first time. Uh-huh. And you basically asked her out on a date. She uh-huh. said she had a date with her boyfriend. Uh-huh. You persisted. I came anyway. Go ahead and continue the story. That's
1: Yeah, so anyway, she said, well, tomorrow I, I'm free. Okay. So I went the following day or whatever. And um, of course, then she went out with me.
0: What drew you to Sophia to begin with?
1: Well, she was pretty. I mean, I'm, I'm not the type of person that wants some kind of a dog. No, I want some good-looking chick, you know. And she was, you know. She had good legs and, uh, she, you know, was good-looking. Because of Sophia, I met all those high-brow type people that we grew in with. There must have been hundreds of them. They were all the same type people that we liked. This particular guy who had what they call a, a garden house. He was a university-educated Bhutanist. And you had to walk through the hot houses, and then you came into some kind of an, a little area, and he had built his own little house. You might say you couldn 't sleep there, but there was a pot stove, there were chairs all around it, lots of wine, and lots of talk and lots of music, and that 's what we stayed out day after day after day after day. So I introduced the spaghetti, and I said, "Well, I think we need sardines with that as well." so we introduced sardines and we had cheese with it and things like that and I, I don't think I would like the spaghetti nowadays because sometimes it was it fell into the, the little pond where the fish was swimming Maybe we kind of <laughs> scooped it out that sort of thing <laughs> But it was still, hey, spaghetti and lots of wine, the cheapest wine you could find. He bought it by the loads, and he was selling it for the same price he was buying it for. And then he became an organization. There was a socialist organization called IAC that started, had started, I think, just before the war. That had kind of fallen apart and made it into a new organization. It was called ROOM. ROOM, I mean expanding, you know, that sort of thing. We had many great minds, as a matter of fact, one of them was uh, became actually the mayor of Rotterdam at one point. you know he was he was one of the the drivers of our of our organization. So we and I stayed there until we came to the United States, and we stayed there many, many nights from eight o'clock in the morning till four o'clock in the morning, and interesting times you know that will never come back, kind of a student type life that we had and everybody liked one another and we thought alike and we argued and we did. It was a wonderful time.
0: From that, what made you decide to move to the United States then?
1: When I came out of the service, I had heard and an talk about a conference, over, I forgot exactly, about Israel, the Kubits. Well, that isn't the community type thing, I forgot exactly the word. And I thought, well, that might be very interesting, even though I'm, I'm not Jewish. So together with this friend of mine, we decided to uh, to go to France first. So we hitchhiked to the southern part of France, worked in the vineyards and things like that for a while. Then we decided, well, I don't think that's a good idea to go <laughs> to Israel anyway. So we went back to Holland. Yeah. That's where I really met, met Sofia. So my interest of moving out of the Netherlands was, I would say, sparked because In the Netherlands at that time, there were not many jobs available. If you got married, you wouldn't be able to find a house. And there was many restrictions that I just did not care for. So I was driving to Amsterdam with my brother, who had a little business in exhibits and design type things. We were doing a show in Amsterdam. And he said, I'm going to immigrate to the United States. I said, you are? I said, can you do that? He said, oh yeah, you can go to the United States too. Because I thought you could only immigrate to Canada and Australia and New Zealand. I didn't know you could immigrate to the United States too. I said, oh. I said, I'd like to do that. He said, well, all you have to do is apply and there you go. So I did. And I had not met Sophia at that particular time. So then when I finally met her, I said, well... I'm applying to go to the United States. I said, I don't know if you want to do this or not, but uh, I mean, that's what I'm doing. She said, Oh, no, I would like to do that as well. So I said, well, okay, you apply by yourself and I apply for mine. And I and we, that's what we did. Until we came closer and closer to our time of leaving, He we said, well, I think it's close enough, we should get married. And we did. And then, of course, we were man and wife, and then of course we were, you know, able to... as a couple, you know.
0: Tell me about your wedding.
1: Disastrous. Was it? Yeah. How was that? Well, first of all, I was so damn nervous that I got a stiff neck. I think I had it for a year. I walked in total agony. You know, when you're young and you never had done that sort of thing, uh, how many weddings did you do, especially yourself, you know? So I thought, well... That should be easy. You, know, you just order in a restaurant somewhere and people come. Well, that was not it, you know, because people don't all come in at once. You know, they come in to here and an hour later another one and another one and another. Oh, God. We were just sitting there waiting, nothing happening. Anything. Oh, there's someone. Okay, this is good. They were giving uh, uh, telegrams. Well, we wish you the best of luck in your endeavors and your marriage and things like that. That's what they were doing. So we got lots of telegrams, but not really people that were, you know, actually visiting. And then the photographer, who was a crook, he uh, was supposed to be there the whole day taking pictures. Well, he went to the church and he went tick, tick, and he went tick, tick. And I think we have from a whole wedding pictures about five or six, you know, that was it. <laughs> and that was about, a, about the size of it. Uh, and on the following day, or the same day, we went to Rotterdam. And uh, for some unknown reason, I thought I needed to be close to the harbor because the following day we were going on to the ship to go to the United States. This taxi driver who took us there, he said, you sure you want to be there? I said, yeah, because that's where I wanted to be. So he said, well, how about this one? And I looked up and I think, this is a whorehouse. <laughs> and I said, no, I don't think I want to be here. He said, well, this is close to the harbor that you will not be. I said, well, then bring me somewhere there. Me. <laughs> so he brought me to the Rhine Hotel. And of course, that was respectable, miles away from the ship. But I thought, well, this is, you know, I could, I finally dawned on me that I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm just a total <laughs> idiot, you know? And on the following day, we took a taxi and to the, the
0: ship. So you take the ship across the Atlantic Ocean, you arrive in New York City, you immigrate into the United States, and you become U.S. citizens. Eventually, you move out to California. You're now exposed directly to United States pop culture, and lots of musicians and artists are, of course, going to be on the TV and the radio. Which of those musicians and artists do you remember and did you care for? And I understand you also uh, have a a specific dislike for one of the artists, uh, Mel Torme. Can you talk about that?
1: Can't stand that guy. The man can't sing. He can't sing. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, Steve Allen loved him. I like Steve Allen. He liked Mel Torme. And I thought, how the hell can you like this guy? He's probably a very good singer, but not in my view. You know, that just wouldn't work. Again, when I was a, a, a teenager and I had some money, I bought a, a record, Good Time Jazz. Good Time Jazz was an uh, American band. Oh, man, I played that record over and over. As a matter of fact, I used to bring it to the dance halls and I knew all the songs and things like that. Man, it was fantastic. But then I also bought records of uh, Mahalia Jackson, uh, Max Rose and his uh, jazz messengers, Herbie Mann.
0: Eventually, over time,
1: that you grew fonder again with classical music. We walked into New York when we came off the ship in 1960, December. Uh, So we and I were walking (laughs) onto 42nd Street. I had all my possessions in my little briefcase. All my money, $200 worth, my passport, that was about it. So we walked by this music store and they had a record of uh, a guitar player, Sokovia, and we bought that. And the price was 5.95, dollars what I thought was, was wow, for a whole, you know, big record. So I started, I didn't even record player, I didn't have that, when we came to the United States. So soon enough... We bought one or I, I was given one. I forgot exactly how. So we could play our records again that I had taken from Europe and that particular record as well. And somehow, to me at least, it started that I thought, I don't know if I want to listen to this anymore. It became, I think, boring. The jazz and the the things that we had been listening to for all those many years that I thought, hmm, no. So then we turned to the radio on um, classical music and it appealed to me at least a lot more than and slowly but surely that's I started to you know later on when the CDs came out uh, because I didn't my, buy any more not that many more records although at one point there were uh, there was a, a program on the television was called Houtenanny and Houtenanny had folk songs and things like that and lo and behold the limelighters came on. With Clint uh, Yarborough. Man, that music, just, yeah, that was good. So I bought a record, and uh, I still have it, as a matter of fact. You see a guy in a, in a Volkswagen with an uh, open deck, and the bass is out there, and the whole gang of the singers are on there, and they're singing the songs and things like that. And they're making some comedy about it as well. I think that was the only kind of a pop-type record that I bought in those days. Well, first of all, I couldn't afford it because, you know, I was poor as a church mouse in those days. <laughs> I was making more money in Europe than I was making over here when I came, yeah. you know, because my profession wasn't really you know, recognized at all. But anyway, then, you know, I started my own business and things like that. And I started to buy records and, or CDs and things like that. And they were almost 90% classical. Do
0: you think that was like a, almost a grounding chord back to your roots, to your birthplace yeah. in a new, yeah, a new so.
1: world? Yeah. yeah, I think so. You know, but like I said before, I, I like all kinds of music. I like music that is good, in my view, at least. You know, that might be not good for anyone else, but at least it appeals to me, and that's that's important. And uh, if another person doesn't like it, that's not my my concern. As long as I like it, like I said, it's the same as wine. If you like it, good. If not show
0: another episode of Music Life Radio please pass the word on to all your friends check out our website at www.musicliferadio.com special thanks to Tom and Sophia Mulder for the interview and I'd also like to mention that they make the best barbecue baby back ribs I have ever had in my life